We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 14th, 2021. The Chicago White Sox just wrapped up another weekend sweep, this time in Detroit. And boy, the White Sox are rolling. Even without Nick Madrigal, Luis Robert, and Aloy Jimenez, the 2021 squad is now 41-24 with a plus 106 run differential. Things are going great, but now comes their toughest week of the season. Three home games against the Tampa Bay Rays, who are a half game ahead of the White Sox for the best record in the American League, and then a four-game road series at Houston. Another great litmus test for the White Sox early in 2021. We'll recap the action from Detroit, preview that race series, as well as touch on what's going down in the minor leagues and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. We got a lot of show to cover, so let's get started. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Another successful weekend of bum slaying for the White Sox. Yes, I... It, it, it's to the point where when the Tigers are on the schedule, it, it seems like, you know, that's the one time where you can maybe wave the, uh, you know, it's tough to sweep a team or it's hard to, uh, you know, come out ahead. Like just the way, the comfort with which they play the Tigers, the comfort with which Tony Larusa can give guys rest and other guys step in and, and provide enough. I guess that's the luxury of having the starting pitching that the White Sox have. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to see that talent disparity finally just working out in the White Sox favor repeatedly over and over again. And for this series, let's talk about immediate impact. And that's Brian Goodwin. So Goodwin gets the start on the Saturday game, which was a complete laugher. The White Sox won that game 15 to two. It really dragged on. I mean, after the first two innings, the White Sox were ahead eight to nothing. And in large part, Thanks to Brian Goodwin, you know, he hit a home run. Uh, He batted second on Saturday over the weekend. He was two for six with the one home run and 
He drove in five runs and walked twice and only struck out twice and he scored three runs. And maybe it's just part of the White Sox luck here, Jim, is that every guy that comes in right now seems to be performing right away for the White Sox when we have doubts if they're going to provide any type of impact. I think it's partially a product of who they played, like the Tigers being who they are and having real pitching problems. Um, you know, seeing Urania or Urania twice in a row, uh, the way the Tigers bullpen was gassed. It seemed like things lined up for the White Sox to have the kind of outburst they had and also, you know, be able to rest the guys that didn't still get production. But seeing Goodwin, you know, show up and, and bat second and deliver from the second spot, I always remind that reminded me of when Jim Leland managed the Tigers. And one of the things uh, I noticed and one of the things that came up was when guys would come up from AAA or guys would come up from uh, or, or come over from another team just new to the lineup one way or another, uh, whether emergency uh, or proven player, he tended to bet guys up top, lead off second spot, just as a way of saying, like, you're part of us now, you're part of the team, we're counting on you as much as we're counting on anybody, even if that's not necessarily true, even if like a, a Quinton Berry type isn't going to be counted on to produce like say Miguel Cabrera does it's just more of an uh I I guess uh, intangible thing or just like an emotional um you know vote of confidence for a player who is just trying to figure out where he fits in and that's what seeing the uh the, the top of the lineup rotate with guys going in and out and getting rest like seeing Goodwin show up and, and bat seconds that's what that reminded me of like you know Goodwin's good enough to you know, bat in the lineup based on what he's produced before, you know, if you can assume any kind of normalcy for him. So you may as well throw him in the second spot when the handedness is right. And same thing with like, you know, batting Larry Garcia up top, you know, we've seen him bat there before, but just uh, kind of unorthodox plays based on the talent they have. But, you know, just it, it, it's the, it speaks to the confidence, just like with Rick Renteria, with him batting Garcia up top, even though he wasn't the typical uh, leadoff man. I, I think there's something to be said for just uh, not getting too hung up on individual lineups for a day and just trying to get guys into position where they feel like they're part of things and and can contribute because uh, it, it's kind of like fake it till you make it. And mm-hmm. uh, just saying like, uh, well, we don't know you can't yet, so... Let's see what he can do. So for Goodwin moving forward, how would you like to see him utilized as far as in platoon situations? Or do you think he should be a primary starter for the White Sox? What would you prefer how Larusa uses Goodwin? It seems like he could start a majority of the time right now, uh, just based on the weaknesses and the shortcomings, uh, limitations of other players like I think in center, I would like to see Adam Engel get most of the reps. He's looked really good, uh, you know, whether he's facing righties or lefties. Again, you know, against weaker opponents maybe, but also just, you know, he hasn't proven he can't yet. And he's been steadily improving for like the last two plus seasons. So you may as well see how far that goes. So, you know, he's coming back from the injury. So maybe don't ride him too hard, but starting most of the time in center. Uh, Andrew Vaughn, I think, is is good enough to start most of the time in left. But Adam Eaton, you know, the way he's playing in right and, and having a hard time getting his legs underneath him, had a couple of infield singles, but not really hitting the ball with any authority. I wouldn't mind seeing Goodwin start there um, in, in terms of getting him uh, regular playing time and seeing exactly what he can offer. And then as the week progresses and if Angle needs a breather or is a bad matchup or Vaughn is looking a little rough or has a tough righty matchup, you know, rotate him to the other corners. Um, I don't think Goodwin is good enough to play center 
most of the time with Angle being able to cover it and, and hit as well as he has right now. But in the corners, I think, between matchups and left and just Adam Eaton's general underperformance and right, I think there is enough ways to get him playing time like four or five days a week, you know, presuming he deserves it. You know, this might be a case where it's like a Detroit-fueled mirage right now with the way Goodwin looked. But, um, you know, given his performance with the Angels and, and, and how good he's been for long stretches with other teams... It stands to reason that you may as well, you know, give him a, a week or two of regular play and just see exactly where he is. So Goodwin was the Saturday story on how he came out and made instant impact. Going to the Sunday story, that was Carlos Rodon, who looked like he was going to throw his second no-hitter of the season, Jim, mm-hmm. uh, during that start. He had a no-hitter going into the seventh inning. He lost it, um, but his final line is still terrific. Seven inning. Seven innings pitched from Rodon, only one hit allowed, one earned run, two walks, and nine strikeouts. From James Fegan after the game asking Larusa because Rodon's pitch count was getting up there, and uh, if he still had the no-hitter through seven, he was going to be close to 100 pitches. Would the White Sox entertain taking Rodon out? And Larusa said that if Rodon was getting fatigued or tight, they would have pulled him, and they certainly would have gone easy on him the next start. But they wouldn't have pulled Rodon if he had a no-hitter going purely for high pitch count concerns. And Larusa added, we were all pulling to have that problem. And again, no-hitters are terrific. They are rare uh, in Major League Baseball, except for this season, it appears. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, I don't remember the last guy who threw two no-hitters in a season. So that would have been really rare company. But for a pitcher like Carlos Rodon, Jim, let's talk about... Maybe a future situation even this season with well how with how well he's been pitching. If Carlos Rodon does have a no hitter again through seven innings, but he's at like let's say ninety five pitches, do you think it's smart for the White Sox to continue to push Rodon for him to achieve another no hitter, or does the past injury concerns uh, worry you and you would rather see the bullpen try to finish the no hitter? I, I think there's limits. I think once you start getting to like 110 pitches, like before the ninth inning, um, that's when I think that's going overboard. And I think Larusa is aware of that. I, I think uh, you know the the situation as it unfolded with the 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 blown strike call or, or the the ball call turning into a double uh, and, and spoiling the bid. I think simplified the decision a lot and made it more about, you know, kind of Larusa saying, well, the way he looked, there was no reason to take him out, you know, assuming that he could have finished Haas with that pitch and then, you know, gotten through the next hitter to get through seven on like pitch count in the low 90s. Like at that point, if you're talking about Rodon in that sense where he wasn't really taxed in any individual inning, then you may as well like not undercut him. Like, you know, not, uh, there, there, there's no reason I think to invite controversy about uh you know how you would have handled him in that situation so uh that's a case where you know Larusa did i think sidestep just uh, uh something that might have annoyed you know one of his players by by you know saying like well after 105 pitches that would have been too much just based on the way that he's um he's managed Rodon's workload so far. Like he's, he's only thrown a couple starts. Like this was actually his third start. That's only been on regular rest, like four days rest. 
the other, uh, he's had two starts in five days rest and then six starts with six days or, of rest or more. So I think that, that LaRusa is very aware of just exactly what he can ask, what he feels comfortable asking from Rodon. And with a, another start looming around the corner on regular rest because the White Sox don't have an off day till another turn in the rotation, then it didn't seem like there would be a natural, easy way for him to lighten the load, um, especially should this uh, upcoming series against Tampa be tough. So I'm guessing that if, you know, Rodon did get into the eighth and his pitch count is like, you know, he runs into a couple of like eight pitch battles, I can't imagine like him finishing the ninth. Uh, that would be very tough for me to believe just based on how cautiously LaRusse has handled Rodon so far and how he's rearranged the rotation to give him extra days off. That would just seem like out of character and just, I, I guess, pursuing an individual goal. I mean, he's already had one no hitter already. So it's like that he's, he's, you're not chasing that like unprecedented accomplishment. You're, you're chasing something else that's cool. But he's already had like one big moment, and at this point, like the the thing you're chasing is the big picture stuff. The entire healthy mm-hmm. season, pitching well into October, you know, potential World Series, um, you know, getting there and potentially winning it. Like that's the things they have in mind right now. So I think you can set aside the individual glory if you're talking about a pitch count that's like challenging 120. Well, Rodon's next start is going to be next weekend against the Houston Astros. Uh, so it should be a tougher test for Carlos Rodon yeah. uh, than it was against Detroit. But it is something that was in the back of my head because, it, you know, it's like it is rare. How many pitchers have thrown two no hitters in a single season? And you never know if you're going to get another opportunity to throw a no hitter. So I totally get it. Like, you always want the starting pitcher to go as far as they could possibly take it. But it is Carlos Rodon. We've seen him miss significant time in the past. He's having the best season of his career. And you'd really like to try to bottle some of his performance up now in June and hope it's there for you in October because that could be the difference of winning the divisional series and maybe winning the American League pennant and going to the World Series. Uh, so I, I'm I'm a bit conflicted that if this does happen again, and he is at that 95 pitch mark in the seventh inning, I'm kind of leaning Jim to you know what make this a team no hitter uh, because again I'd, I'd like to see Carlos Rodon make it through the, the the entire season, which would be a first for him since what his second season with the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe if like it were coming up on the All Star break where you could give him like. Uh, you know, eight days off or something like that, then maybe you could go nuts. But yeah, as you mentioned, Houston is right around the corner. Uh, you know, more than half a season remaining. Michael Kopech isn't healthy. Like they don't have a, a natural sixth starter waiting to step in. So they, they need him every turn out right now. Well, Carlos Rodon, I think, is going to go to the All-Star game. He might want to pitch in the All-Star game because that'll be his first All-Star game. Yeah, it's possible. But, you know, just say, I think you know, it would be hard. It would be a hard sell if, uh, you know, he were... Uh, coming up on the all-star game and he threw 124 pitches to get a no hitter or try to get a no hitter. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, I want to, you know, I want to pitch, you know, air it out for an inning three days later in a game that doesn't count. I, I think that would be a hard sell. That would be an impossible sell. It would seem like one or the other. Exactly. Exactly. Well, hopefully we do get to see this situation again later this season from Carlos Rodon. Let's talk about another situation that occurred over the weekend. So we talked about the big storyline on Saturday, the big storyline on Sunday. 
Let's go to what ended up being the biggest story on Friday night, and it's the ninth inning, a 49-minute rain delay in the bottom of the ninth inning. The White Sox were up 4-2. to two. Liam Hendricks throws one pitch, heavy downpour. It was, in my opinion, Jim, a dumb decision by the umpire crew to try to press on with that type of rain going on. I get it. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. Let's get this game over with. But it just seemed like it was an impossible task. And, of course, the Detroit broadcasters said that Liam Hendricks had a temper tantrum throwing the ball away before throwing his next pitch on 1-0 and just bought enough time for the umpires to change their mind and bring out the tarp. But when Hendricks comes back out after a 49-minute rain delay, he gives up a two-run homer and blows the save, and the White Sox have to go into extra innings. And then there was Aaron Bummer's high-wire act to escape that jam, and the White Sox ultimately won. But it does raise the situation, Jim, that typically in a lengthy rain delay, let's say if that was in the fourth inning when Lucas Giolito's pitching, I don't think we would see Lucas Giolito return after a 49-minute rain delay. It would absolutely suck. It's terrible luck. But he's warm, and then he cools down, and then he tries to warm up again. That's just not a good situation for any pitcher. And I wonder... Does that need to be applied to relievers like Liam Hendricks in the future? Guys that get super amped up, super hot to max out for one inning, and then they get cool because they're waiting around until the rain stops, and then they try to warm up again, and they're just not as effective. Uh, maybe. I, I think in the case of relievers, you know, they, they do have the precedent of warming up multiple times in the game, and especially like Liam Hendricks, who's you know, relatively new to closing, like, or at least he hasn't been like a closer for most of his career. He's been, uh, he's tried starting. He's been kind of a swingman, long reliever type. And, and so he's used to, or at least he, you know, he has recent memory of, you know, maybe getting up in the fourth inning, throwing some pitches, sitting back down, getting back up in the sixth inning, throwing some more pitches, eventually coming in. And so, you know, I imagine if he comes in and he throws uh, one pitch, then he, you know, kind of stalls and, and, Let's it go. I can see, you know, looking at usage patterns and warm up patterns and saying like, no, this is uh, he's still, you know, basically he can get him warm. Like I think with a guy like Giolito, who's been pitching, you know, maybe for like, you know, an hour, you know, getting up and down. And then he has like 50 minutes off. That would be a case where that just might be too much. I don't know, lactic acid or whatever you might say is, uh, you know, getting in the way of preventing him from getting back on track. But I think with relievers, they're, their usage patterns are different. Their warm-up patterns are different. So it didn't strike me as unusual. Like, I could see it going either way. If they came out with Aaron Bummer in the ninth, I would have understood it. With Liam Hendricks coming out, I understood that too. Like, just based on that he'd only thrown one pitch and then he just, you know, hadn't faced one batter yet. It seemed like it made enough sense based on going how he felt and how he hadn't been, you know, really overused in previous days. So it seemed like a chance worth taking if it was even a chance at all. It was just basically one misplaced fastball that got him in trouble and uh, or at least maybe one fastball that uh, he didn't think would be uh, swung on so convincingly because he said like he was going to just start him off with the fastball then see where it goes and he didn't get past one fastball so just might have been one pitch that we wouldn't be assessing if it happened like during just a, a normal outing hmm. good points it is something that I've been pondering about is well maybe don't have pitchers come back after a 49-minute rain delay. But you do make good points with relievers because they are used to warming up multiple times. And 
yeah, just one bad pitch by Hendricks, and then the save got blown, and it got a little dicey for the White Sox, but they ultimately found a way to win on Friday and the yeah. laugher on Saturday, and then... Yeah, I think with uh, with Hendricks, though, you mentioned that the, you know, going all out, and that might be something unique to him, like just how amped up he gets. Who knows how much caffeine he's ingested, so <laughs> that could be a case where, you know, maybe, uh, you know, all of it, you know, he goes back on the mound and has to pee or something just based on what he's ingested over the uh, you know previous hour, thinking he was going to pitch the ninth 50 minutes ago. So that's that's the one exception I can see is if somebody operates on his kind of um, you know whatever caffeine intake he's working with, energy drink intake he's working with. Maybe there's a case where he's not the same 50 minutes later if he's planned on pitching the ninth all along. Yeah, good points. So I'll grant well, you that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, again, White Sox win a tight one on Friday in extra innings. Uh, they win a laugher on Saturday and they cruise to a victory on Sunday. They sweep the Tigers and boy, this White Sox team is playing terrific baseball. They are 41 and 24, but they have a really tough series coming up next. And we will be spending more time previewing that Rays versus White Sox series, which looks to be as even as a matchup between two strong teams as it could possibly be. We'll break it down, but after a quick word from our sponsor, Jim brings you this week's Minor League Report. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, minor league report time. We'll start with the Charlotte Knights, who dropped four of six to the Bulls in Durham. The Knights only scored one run over the last two games, but they were able to split them thanks to Jimmy Lambert, who threw five shutout innings on Sunday. Since returning from his emergency start for the White Sox, he's allowed just one unearned run over nine and two-thirds innings, with 11 strikeouts against eight base runners. He and Mike Wright are the only Charlotte starters to string together strong outings this year, as Jonathan Stever has been uneven all season, and Reynaldo Lopez hasn't provided any sort of positive sign. The offense is still struggling to find production away from Charlotte. Gavin Sheets hit a solo shot on Sunday for Charlotte's only run, but even then his OPS on the road is about 440 points lower than it is at home. He went 3-for-23 this past week, while Blake Rutherford and Jake Berger were both 3-for-20. Sebi Zavala returned from the injured list, but he has the same problems away from Truist Field. The Birmingham Barons provided more thunder over the last week, especially Romy Gonzalez. Gonzalez was only 5-for-21 on the week, but four of his hits left the yard, giving him 10 for the season. Taekwon Forbes also found some missing muscle by batting 364 with four doubles and a triple, and Mike Rodolfo has stabilized into somebody who hits 250 with a homer or two every week, which is good enough for now. 
The pitching has hit some snags. Cade McClure has had persistent problems with the first and second innings this year. Jason Billis hasn't yet found an encore for his double-A debut. Fortunately, Connor Pilkington and Blake Battenfield keep cruising along, with Battenfield throwing at least five innings in all seven starts this year, with a 2.5 ERA on the season. Winston-Salem finished the week on the wrong side of 500 by losing the last four of a series against Greenville, scoring a total of just six runs during the skid. The problem is that Luis Curbelo has cooled off in June after a powerful May, and nobody has really stepped up. Gilbert Sanchez is doing what he can, hitting 405 with a homer, two doubles, and three walks over 10 games this month, but he doesn't have a whole lot of company in the prospect ranks. Lennon Sosa is using June to cut down in his strikeout rate, but it's not showing up in the betting average column yet, as he's hitting 238 with a 306 OBP, while Duke Ellis followed a good week with a rough one. The Dash's pitching continues to be solid despite lacking name-brand talent. One arm I'd like to draw your attention to is Luke Schilling, who has struck out 14 batters against just one hit and three walks over seven innings in June. He's had a strong season, especially considering Tommy John surgery prevented him from making his pro debut until this year, even though he was selected in the 15th round out of the University of Illinois back in 2018. 11 of his 12 outings have been scoreless, and the strikeout rate is surging. And in Kannapolis, the worst may be behind the Cannonballers. They're 7-28, and and that's still the worst record in the low A East by four games, but they're 5-6 and in June, including a three-game winning streak against Carolina this week. The lineup has benefited from the returns of Chase Krogman and DJ Gladney, along with some strides in June by Cabiria Weaver, all of whom are backing up the season-long production of Jose Rodriguez and Brian Ramos' continued improvement. They're still subject to uneven play, including a whopping eight errors on Saturday, but there are nights now where the unit looks collectively dangerous. The pitching is shaping up too. Andrew Dahlquist delivered the best outing of his young pro career by striking out seven over five innings of one-run ball against Carolina on Thursday, and Yuelvin Sylvan pitched three and two-thirds scoreless innings to pick up his first stateside win on Wednesday. Bailey Horn has been strong all month, allowing just one earned run over 12 innings in June. The hope is that Matthew Thompson or Jared Kelly can eventually join them. Kelly hasn't pitched since May 22nd, and Thompson looks like he needs a break, what with 10 walks over five and two-thirds innings this month. Looking ahead, Charlotte returns home to host Jacksonville, the Barons travel to Mississippi, Winston-Salem hosts Greensboro, and the Cannonballers travel to Kinston, North Carolina to play the Down East Wood Ducks. That's it for the Meyer League Report. For more details on White Sox prospects, make sure to check out the Minor Keys post each morning on Sox Machine. For those who support Sox Machine on Patreon, I'll have a fresh Farm Fortnite post on Tuesday that summarizes prospect progress, or lack thereof, over the past two weeks. If you don't yet support Sox Machine, now would be a great time to sign up. You can do so at patreon.com slash Machine starting at $2 a month. The next series for the Chicago White Sox is against the Tampa Bay Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays are 42-24, and 24, so they're a half game ahead of the Chicago White Sox for the best record in the American League. The Rays are three games ahead of the Boston Red Sox, leading the American League East. In their last 10 games, the Tampa Bay Rays are 7-3, and three, and they have won three straight games as they make their way into Chicago. There are two stats or numbers that really jump off the page when you're looking at the Tampa Bay's win-loss record. One, they are 26-16 and 16 against teams with an above 500 record. Now, that's fluid. They might have played a team in April that was above 500, and they got some wins and losses there. But as far as teams that are currently above 500 in June, uh, the Rays are 10 games above 500, 26-16. 
uh, away, their away record is 23 and 10. They're just as good on the road as the White Sox are at home. And, and speaking of that record above 500 against opponents, the one knock you are starting to hear from those outside of Chicago and even some within Chicago is that the White Sox are just 13 and 17 against teams above 500. So looking at the pitching probables for this series, on Monday, it is a marquee matchup. It is Tyler Glass now against Lance Lynn. On Tuesday, it's two lefties that are very different from each other. It is Shane McClanahan, the fireballer, against the veteran Dallas Keuchel. And then on Wednesday, getaway day for the White Sox and Rays. It's an afternoon tilt. It is to be determined for Tampa Bay. And it'll be Lucas Giolito on the mound. Jim, it is the American League's best team squaring off this week, Monday through Wednesday. I did a confidence poll on Twitter asking White Sox fans, how many games do you think the team will win? 60.5% believe the White Sox will win this series, winning two games. And 33.4% believe the White Sox will lose this series with only winning one out of three against Tampa Bay. As we head into this series, uh, how do you feel about this matchup between the Rays and White Sox? I think it's going to be fascinating. I think it could be maddening. I think it's uh, uh, the Rays are tough. And, and I, I think they're just, you know, that, that's kind of an understatement. But it's also, I think they're just built to be tough. They're, they're built to be modular in the pitching staff, modular on the lineup side. Like they... they they don't have a whole lot of name brand talent or they shed some of their name brand talent, but the, they make sure to replace them with guys who serve a purpose, whether it's against lefties or righties or guys who can go through a lineup once or guys who can uh, you know, come in later in the game. It's just they have a plan for everybody. And I think that's basically their their strength. It's basically like Earl Weaver, like, you know, when you, when you read about his philosophy with the Orioles, like in the in the 70s, like just that, that philosophy of making sure everybody's useful. And I think the Rays take that to like a really – um, severe degree. And I think it'll be a little bit informative. Like I think, you know, if the White Sox had a tough series, you know, when you look at the amount of players they've lost and how they've managed to soldier on without a letdown yet, like you can see one coming and say, and be able to write it off. But I do think at the same time, it's a good, uh, good way to kind of get a gauge of just exactly how Tony La Russa might pursue some of similar advantages uh, you know, it should later in the season, should you need to win games later in the season? Should there be uh, October uh, baseball um, against teams like this? Like how early will he go to pinch hitters? How early will he pull starters? How will he use relievers? Like, as you mentioned, they're built very similarly and they have some guys who can be stretched out to orthodox roles. And as we saw in, in Sunday's game where Andrew Vaughn pinch hit in the fifth inning, I believe, for Brian Goodwin, like there are ways where the White Sox can mix and match earlier than teams typically do. So I'm curious whether, you know, La Russa will be uh, lured into playing the same game that Kevin Cash does, and there are going to be a lot of matchups to play, or whether, you know, once he's past this rest period where he tried to get guys a breather, where you know, he's going to have basically the same lineup, uh, at least like one through eight with catchers rotating and whatnot, and then... Uh, basically seeing how his starters do against a team that does, uh, you know, deploy guys in unorthodox fashions. Well, let's compare as far as these two teams. We're going to start with the offense. So I pulled out five metrics that I, I think are helpful when comparing offenses. For weighted runs created plus, 
The White Sox have the second best weighted runs created plus in all of Major League Baseball. Tampa's 10th. When you compare as far as home runs hit, the White Sox as a team have only hit 65 home runs. That's good for 21st in all of baseball. Uh, The Tampa Bay Rays are right there at the median mark. They are 14th in baseball, hitting 77 home runs. So the Rays have hit 12 more home runs than the White Sox. Both teams do a really good job taking their walks. They're both above 10%. The White Sox have the second highest walk rate in baseball. The Rays have the fifth highest. Uh, when you look at isolated power, very similar. Tampa Bay at .162, the White Sox at .157. Uh, the Rays are 13th and the White Sox are 18th in baseball. And then batting average. This is where you kind of have a gap here. The team batting average for Tampa Bay is 230. That's 24th best in baseball. The White Sox team batting average is 254. That's the fourth best mark in all of Major League Baseball. So when I look at these offensive numbers, Jim, and, and trying to get an understanding on how each team's weighted runs created plus is being fueled by, for the White Sox, it's their ability to put the ball in play get base hits, and take a high amount of walks. And for Tampa, it's their ability to take a lot of walks, but also find a way to drive in runs via the home run. And I'm wondering if that's going to be the formula that both teams are going to try to use against each other. Tampa being patient enough and then try to take advantage of hitting multi-run home runs and the White Sox trying to put as many base runners on as possible and hoping for key singles or doubles with men on scoring position. Yeah, I I think you did a good job of summing it up. I think the one thing that also separates these two offenses is the Rays are second in the American League in strikeout rate. At 27.2%, that's nearly 4% higher than the White Sox, who are basically middle of the pack at 23.5. So you can strike them out. And uh, the Tigers are the only team that strikes out more. And we've seen you know, the limitations of the Tigers' offense. Now, obviously, the, the Rays have a lot more talent and a lot more uh, options for Kevin Cash to line them up against you know, pitchers of a certain handedness or, or arsenal. So... Uh, you know, that, that one metric only goes so far, but with the White Sox having, you know, a very stable rotation and uh, we've seen them working, working deeper into games and, and making kind of the, the bullpen matchups pretty easy for Tony La Russa to figure out as of late that, you know, if Lance Lynn has a good outing and strikes out, say like, you know, nine over six innings, nine over seven innings, then, uh, you know, that I think marginalizes a lot of what the Rays do well. So I, I think uh, the strikeout column is what I'm going to be looking for. I mean, the Rays can strike out guys too, and the White Sox can strike out in clumps. Uh, they have some occasional fits with uh, the strike zone based on, you know, especially against righties and righties of a certain uh, power, like, uh, you know, especially hard throwing righties. So it'll be uh, uh, the, the Rays don't have a shortage of those guys. So I think you could see the strikeouts and, and strike zone be a big part of this, but I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, even if the Rays can line up a number of lefties against a guy like Lynn, that, you know, he can he can persevere and, and get those swings and misses like you know, he has been getting. Yeah, because when you look at the starting rotations, uh, ERA, the White Sox have the second best team ERA as far as starters in all of baseball. They're right below three at 2.99. The Rays have the eighth best. They're at 3.41. FIP. Very close. The White Sox are at 3.57. That's the sixth best in baseball. The Rays are at 3.68. You mentioned the strikeout rate. The White Sox starters strike out batters 27.8% of the time. That's the fifth best mark in baseball. The Rays are at 26.6. That's eighth best in baseball. Walk rate. 
Rays starters walk batters 7% of the time. White Sox starters walk batters at 7.6% of the time. And home runs per nine innings. Uh, the Rays allow 1.19 home runs per nine innings, at least the starters do, where the White Sox starters allow 1.14. Both the teams are outside the top 10 in that category. And, and the relievers, uh, again, really close matchups here. I mean, the Rays bullpen has a bullpen ERA of 3.16. The White Sox are a little bit higher. They're at 3.61. That's good for the ninth best in baseball. But for FIP, it's flipped around. The Rays are at 3.68, the fifth best. But the White Sox FIP is 3.40. That's the third best in baseball. White Sox relievers strike out batters more frequently than the Rays uh, relievers do by 3%. That's a pretty big gap. Uh, The walk rates are very similar, 8.4% for Rays relievers, 8.5% for the White Sox relievers. And again, back to home run rate, very similar. The Rays bullpen allows .98 home runs per nine innings. The White Sox, 1.02 homers per nine innings. So I think the difference in relievers is that the White Sox, with that 28% rate uh, as far as their relievers uh 3% more than Tampa we'll probably see more strikeouts for the White Sox in in late inning situations but again Jim we're I, I'm like typically when I compare two teams and we do deep analysis we can find where the big gaps are and say this is where we have to focus on because this could determine how the series goes but for the Rays and for the White Sox this is two really evenly matched teams on paper. And as you mentioned at the beginning of this preview, this is where it's going to be fascinating and also maddening for both fan bases because there could be points of the games that it could be frustrating for both sides on, well, why are they not succeeding? And it's going to be because the other team is really good too. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of... Uh... Looking at the uh, Rays pitching staff, and, and you know, they're, they're built in two different ways. I think the White Sox are built in a, an aesthetically pleasing or kind of old-fashioned way of getting starters to go six, seven innings and then hand it off to the bullpen, whereas the Rays get a whole lot more different contributors rotating in and out of their rotation, their bullpen. Like they have, I, I looked it up, the White Sox have had 15 different pitchers throw at least two outings for them. Um, and then, you know, basically Ryan Burr has thrown three, Alex McGray has thrown two. So the other 13 guys have thrown uh, 10 outings or more. And then you look at the Rays and they've had 22 guys throwing at least two outings. Like they just have a lot more part-time contributors, guys rolling in, guys rolling out. They've had some injuries here and there, but they've also just, that's part of their model is having a deep supply of, um, kind of fungible arms, but high quality fungible arms in triple uh, A and, and, and double A that they can rotate in and out. Like they've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different guys with uh, between two and nine appearances this year. The White Sox have had two of those. So that's, uh, I think, uh, what makes them different. And it's, I prefer the White Sox model just because, you know, I think a lot of people have problems with the way the Rays develop talent and churn through talent like it's hard for fans there to get attached to certain guys and know who you're hard for casual fans to know exactly who these guys are when they rotate in and out so frequently over the course of the season uh you know then then we're not even talking about year to year whereas the white Sox have a pretty stable you know cast of characters that fans get to know but you know there's no arguing with the the success that the rays have had and you know i remember when we talked about this in the preseason, just trying to figure out which teams we liked more than the White Sox. And 
I put the Rays ahead of them just because, like, even though they lost uh, Blake Snell and they lost Charlie Morton, I just didn't trust them to suck. <laughs> didn't trust them to take a step back. Like, uh, yeah, they they seem like you know they had all they had many markings of a team taking a step back, but you just can't count them out. Like they they recognize value and they know how to extract value from guys who are ordinary. And, and you know you see them bring up a guy like Rich Hill and just know exactly how to use a 41-year-old Rich Hill to get uh, the most value out of him or probably the most value he's provided to any team in the first half in years. Uh, that's what's really fascinating about them, and it's two different ways to run a team. I think you'd rather have more teams constructed like the White Sox just in, in terms of fan friendliness, but uh, in terms of just, under, you know, I guess, understanding like all the nooks and crannies of a baseball team to understand how wins can be attained you have to marvel at the way the Rays do it well we did get this question as you know completing as far as the comparisons between the two teams and how evenly matched they are one of our patreon supporters rodney wrote to us jim how important really is this coming week next seven against top two top tier clubs if the white Sox go three and four in these seven games with the fill-ins i think we declare victory and move on right more or less i think for like a week like this you kind of you know success is partially how well cleveland does <laughs> because uh you build up a a five and a half game lead and this is what you use that five and a half game lead for like tough weeks Weeks where you don't like the way your pitchers are, are lining up. Weeks where you want guys to get uh, time off. Weeks where guys might have to go on the injured list and you might have a cluster of, of inactive players. Uh, you know, it's a tough week for the Sox just because, you know, they're playing Tampa and Houston the same week that the uh, Cleveland's playing the Orioles and then the Pirates. So they play the Orioles, Pirates, Cubs, uh, two games against the Cubs, and then the Twins and Tigers. So... Uh, Cleveland has a really easy finish to the month. And then you look at the White Sox have, and they have, th- this week is tough, and then it, then it smooths out. So I think, I would say three wins would be fine. Uh, even like a two and five week, when you have a five and a half game lead, like this is the week where if you have to take a hit, if uh, the the games don't go right, if if like say like uh, the, the role that the starters are on, if Lance Lynn finally has a rough outing, or if, uh, you know, Giolito struggles or you know, Dallas Keuchel has a, a wobbles or, or Carlos Rodon, you know, can't, uh, you know, maybe two regular starts in a row is a little bit too much for him at this time uh, in his season. Like that's uh, I, I that you, you borrow a little bit from that five and a half game lead and you say like, okay, well, we'll just write that one off and then go into the next week. So yeah, I agree with Rodney that it's a, uh, you can't really judge how the White Sox are this week based on who they've lost, who they're playing, and uh, you know who their chief rivals right now are playing. You just have to basically get past it, uh, try not to get carried away with uh, pitch counts, and, uh, uh, and and hope on the position player side that nobody explodes running to first base. Yeah, as you mentioned, Jim, the White Sox next series after this week, two in Pittsburgh, and then they have a home stretch, three against Seattle, four against the Minnesota Twins. The Twins are getting Byron Buxton back and Kenta Maeda for these upcoming series. Then a then they go on the road and their road trip before the All-Star break, three in Detroit, three in Minnesota, three in Baltimore. So you're right, based on the win-loss records right now, 
boy, that two-week stretch for the White Sox from the end of June until the All-Star break uh, looks to be pretty easy right now. But this week, I, again, I think this is going to be a good litmus test to see and just how strong this team is. And, you know, Rodney brought up the point, you know, with the fill-ins, again, the White Sox not having Nick Madrigal now or Luis Robert, or Aloy Jimenez, and they have the second-best record in the American League. They're just a half game behind Tampa. If they could find a way to win on Monday, they'll have the best record in the American League on Monday. And it's just it's really impressive on how this team has been able to overcome these injury challenges. And sure, you know, they're facing teams that are bums, but you got to beat the bums on the schedule, man. You can't let them you know, get in your way or prevent you from winning a division. You got to beat these guys and, and the White Sox continue to do so. So we'll see when the difficulty gets turned up, how this squad does against a really good race team. Uh, what is one thing that you are hoping to see out of this series against Tampa Bay, Jim? I would like to see uh, just not getting blanked by a parade of relievers. Like just not having like a a, a series where um, just the two times through the lineup and then just uh, you know three or four relievers is all it takes to shut down the White Sox, especially like say if it's hard throwing relievers from the right side. Just because I think that's well, I guess you can look at it two ways. If that happens, I think the White Sox should take that as a possible sneak preview of how things could go in October with the way things are. So you know perhaps it's a good way to recognize a weakness. And maybe uh, get uh, on the phone to figure out, like, you know, maybe what potential upgrades there are at uh, second base or the outfield. Um, But, you know, should they get through this and score some runs against Tampa's bullpen and not be so susceptible to just good pitching from the right-handed side, then I think I'll take that as a win. Well, mine was what you referenced earlier in this segment about how LaRusa manages these three games and... I think everything's going to be under a microscope for him. Is he going to use these three games and treat this series as postseason practice rather than just going through the regular season motions and then try to treat it like any other game because there's so many more games left to go? Uh, that That's what I'm going to be interested in on, is how Larusa handles this series because I, I think it might be worthwhile to treat it like as a postseason warm-up even though we still got over 100 games left to go in the season, it would be a good time just to see, all right, here are the gaps that we truly do have with the roster when we're facing another playoff caliber team. And yeah, it's a small sample size, um, but it might be some uh, confirmation bias going on if you feel like, hey, Mm -hmm. we really need another bat. This series may be telling, and yeah, you may need another bat. Uh, If you're not comfortable with Cody Hoyer coming in the eighth inning uh, and he struggles in that high leverage situation, uh, it might confirm that, yeah, maybe the White Sox do need to go get another reliever. Uh, So that's how I'm going to be watching this series. That would be the biggest thing is how is La Russa going to treat these three games? Is he going to still be aggressive with the pinch hitting opportunities or the defensive substitutions? Are we going to see bunting? Are we not going to see bunting? And how is he going to try to mix and match as far as the bullpen uh, matchups, especially with the three batter minimum uh, late in games and who he is most comfortable going to? 
Because uh, if the White Sox could win this series, I think that's still a huge morale boost for this ball club that's, you know, flying high now. And that gives them a lot of confidence going to Houston, looking to get another big series win against a very good opponent. Yeah, I think that series against Houston, though, is why I wouldn't get carried away, like, uh, I guess, over substituting just because the White Sox do have a fairly firm bullpen and rotation and roster right now. They don't have a whole lot of options in AAA, so... You know, the, the Rays can get away with being very aggressive with short hooks and uh, relief appearances that can stretch multiple innings or, you know, have guys pitch back-to-back days because they can send them back down to AAA and then bring them back up in uh, two weeks and, and start anew, whereas the White Sox have to basically stick with the guys they have. So I think there are, you know, there might be some situations where Larusa can be more aggressive, but with Houston, you know, four games against Houston looming right around the corner and a and no off days in between. I, I think probably he can't quite be as aggressive as Kevin Cash is just swapping guys out. What does your gut say on how this series will play out between the White Sox and Rays? How many games do you think the White Sox could win? It feels like a one out of three to me just because of the parade of right-handed relievers that I can see just suppressing the White Sox for a series. Now, I see that with very little confidence just because the White Sox are, you know, their resilience is really impressive. And, you know, they have some disasters, they have some injuries, they have some really ugly sequences, whether with the bullpen or uh, maybe some Larusa strategy that backfires and you feel like it's all going to collapse. And then, you know, the smoke clears and they've won two out of three. And that's, I think, the, the most refreshing thing about this team is we've seen uh, teams where they are dysfunctional and they do have chief weaknesses and that just sinks them for weeks at a time. And the White Sox really have a hard time losing three games in a row. So, at this point, like when you say they're going to lose two out of three, uh, that sets them up for one of those three-game winning streaks they seem like they're really well-built to avoid. So that's why I say it with very little confidence. But you think at some point there's like a series loss coming around the corner, and this would be uh, one team that could exploit some White Sox weaknesses and maybe finally, I guess, lure them into the letdown they've been uh, so far dodging with all these bodies they've lost. It's going to be a terrific series. I can't wait. I'll be at the game on Monday because I just, I, I, I can't stay away. It's glass now against Lynn. That's a terrific pitchy matchup. I'd love to be in the stadium to watch those two. And I, I will be there. So that'll be a fun time. I, it's going to be a fun series. No matter how this plays out, yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot about the Chicago White Sox as is with their current roster. Yeah, that's. That's, that's like the good news about this is it feels like it's going to be educational either way. Exactly. And, and if you can, you know, if, if they lose two out of three or, you know, uh, God forbid, get swept, like at least you could say like, oh, how did this happen? Like, and, and then go from there. Whereas, you know, if you lose three in a row to Detroit or Baltimore, like a team you should uh, be able to dispatch with fairly easily, then that there's, there's nothing to learn from that except like, hoping it's not as bad as it looked. Well, we will be recapping this series later this week on Sox Machine Live, uh, which is going to be after the Wednesday game. Again, the Wednesday game's at 1.10 p.m. Central Time. So we'll have Sox Machine Live on June 16th, Wednesday night. Check later for details. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine and also get updates on SoxMachine.com when we do stream that broadcast because we do have to preview the Houston Astros series Wednesday night as the White Sox will finish up 
the home game and then have to head to the airport and fly down to Houston for four games before having an off day and then flying to Pittsburgh for a two-game series. That's the White Sox next nine games, and it'll be exciting to see where the White Sox end up after these next nine games. But you guys had a lot of questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters filled up the mailbag again. Thank you guys so much uh, for your support and for all of your questions. And if you would like to support us and you want to hear your question or topic answered on a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, the best way to do it, uh, and the easiest way right now, is to go to patreon.com slash Machine uh, to sign up to help support us and to submit your P.O. Sox questions. And Jim, uh, with the loaded mailbag again, let's go to our first question from Kyle Nelson. And Kyle's asking, what's the bigger need right now for the White Sox? Outfield depth? second base or relief pitcher? I would say outfield depth just because, you know, they, they've had injuries already. And then with, you know, Adam Engel back from a significant injury, Larry Garcia, no stranger to being injured. Adam Eaton, no stranger to being injured. Like they, they've had three guys that are in the mix right now who could miss a significant amount of time at any point this season. So that's why it feels like when you look at Happening in Charlotte, you know, Luis Gonzalez hit a hit by pitch and, and had to leave a game, uh, and he's not a great bet to produce. Gavin Sheets, really severe home and road splits, so he's not somebody you feel great about stepping up. It feels like uh, they're just kind of courting disaster. Brian Goodwin's a nice little move. Oh, we'll see how he looks, and, and that's why I want to see him get some playing time to better understand what he offers before, you know, I guess, using a couple games against Detroit to really uh, start projecting the future. Uh, but it feels like one... One more bet feels like it'd be really useful to have there. And, and I think, you know, that's why Adam Frazier is so appealing, just because he a- addresses both second base and outfield. Like, say, if Danny Mendick actually looks pretty good at second and Garcia uh, offsets some of his weaknesses and they have, like, a Yolmer Sanchez-like production at second base during Madrigal's absence, that's, they can win with that uh, if, if he's the worst infielder there or, or that combination is the worst infielder. But when you have like, you know, a potential where, you know, Andrew Vaughn is the best outfielder there and you're counting on a guy who's, uh, you know, been admirable in his rookie season for just how little experience he carried into 
both uh, you know at the plate and in the field at that his particular position that he's learning, like that's no knock on him. It's just more of a matter of like that just feels like a we've seen it with Cleveland. We've seen just how far a team can go and how tough it is to to get over the top when you're not getting any production from the outfield. And it seems like they would be really courting disaster uh, with that uh, with that gap there, especially since you know they could have similar problems next year. Uh, with Adam Eaton being probably one and done, like uh, it's hard to know exactly who's going to fill that spot. So that's why I say uh, outfield. I, I think the bullpen might resolve itself, and if it doesn't, um, you know, teams can always use extra pitchers. So that just feels more like a low-lying concern that uh, you, you probably wait till more towards the deadline and figure out who's truly selling to really uh, see who's who's available and, and whom the White Sox can pry away without giving up too much. Well, before he exited with an injury in the game against Cleveland, there's been some talk about Mitch Haniger possibly being a White Sox trade target. Is that someone that you would think of, Jim, if you would like the White Sox to address that outfield depth? I like him. I just don't like his injury history. Yeah. It, so that's it, why I don't feel expensive. great about him, but I like the talent. So I understand why and... If they got him, I'd feel okay with it. I just hope that uh, they know exactly what they're dealing with. And he's had some some injuries that are freaking fluky and cringe-inducing, and then others that are more typical, like you know, following a ball off his leg is you know more of a standard baseball injury. So we'll see how he bounces back. But uh, just yeah, I like the talent, but it just be another case where he hope he stays healthy. And the White Sox have a lot of guys who require hope. Yeah, Seattle is pretty loaded with outfielders, so that's why there are some thinking that Hanager could be made available. Hanager in 64 games this year for Seattle has already hit 16 home runs. That would by far and away lead the White Sox as Jose Abreu just has 11 home runs so far this season. Uh, so again, the White Sox right now uh, in the bottom 10th in all of Major League Baseball as a team in home runs hit. Uh, if they were to get someone like Mitch Haneker, that could possibly help in the power department for the White Sox. It's it's a bit lacking right now, especially with home runs for the team. But Kyle, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Derek Keane. And Derek is asking, who are some White Sox minor leaguers that you anticipate seeing some significant time in Chicago this season? Are there any you think will or could make a playoff roster? Significant time... Uh... Probably not. It seems like who they have on the roster is who's going to be like the guys they're counting on. When you when you look at Charlotte's, like you know, right now with the hitters, you know, as I mentioned, the home road splits are pretty stark. So I think it's going to take probably another month to feel like you understand exactly who might have a chance at contributing there. Uh, the bullpen's been uneven. The starting rotation's been uneven. I, I like Jimmy Lambert probably the best of the starters, and I can see him pitching in with a couple starts, especially if they can like introduce him against weaker opponents. Uh, maybe a, a stretch where they face a Detroit or a Pittsburgh or, um, you know, like a Kansas city, if they're having to regroup a little bit, um, the bullpen, you know, like Nick Turley is starting to turn around. The white Sox liked him in spring training and they, they liked him enough to briefly put him on the 40 man roster and they were able to sneak him through waivers to get him off. But He's starting to turn uh, to shape up into somebody they seem to have liked before, so I wouldn't be surprised if he made some appearances. And Zach Birdie's always there as well as a possibility because he has 
he has major league pitches. He just doesn't have like major league consistency in executing those pitches. Like the the, the pitches that are mistakes tend to get crushed. And uh, that seems like something that could be straightened out or something that plagues him, you know, the rest of his career. It's hard to say. Uh, just given his, uh, you know, everything he's been through injury-wise and not knowing exactly what his ceiling is. Uh, but when you look at Double A, Double A is still pretty rough there, pretty raw. So I think the the contributors you're going to see at the major league level who aren't on the roster right now seems like it'll either be a bullpen guy who figures it out, or it's going to be somebody off the roster from another team. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Two Dog, and Two Dog is asking, I like a lot of people, were unhappy with the Tony La Russa hire. For me, it was mostly because of his contribution to the steroid era. However, with where they are at today, in spite of the injuries, has La Russa done a good job with the White Sox? I think he's done a good job as of late. Like, I think, you know, probably over the first half of this season so far, I would say the White Sox are more winning in spite of him. Oh, uh, rallying you know, around, uh, not around him, but I guess against him or just around themselves separate from him. And, you know, they had some high profile uh, bullpen missteps. He didn't know the rules twice. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff where, you know, that is, it's incumbent on a manager to know the rules, especially when other managers on the other side say, oh yeah, I knew that. Um, yeah, that's a case where it is, you know, just uh, negligence a little bit or, um, yeah, whether it's coasting or just being, uh, I guess, the game being a bit too fast for him or trying to get back up to game speed, uh, given his layoff, like that's a case where the hire did seem to hamper the White Sox. Now, I think with the rotation shaping up and, and being reliable one through five, his bullpen has become a lot simpler. Like he generally knows that he wants Liam Hendricks in the ninth, Aaron Bummer in the eighth. And he wants he wants to believe in Cody Hoyer and Evan Marshall. I think he's done a good job of not abandoning them and going right back to them. And I think uh, both Hoyer and Marshall have not... They, they've made him look okay for doing so. Like, they haven't made him look crazy for trying to get better results the second time around. So that's nice to see. And I think there is some value in just the way he's been able to rotate guys like Billy Hamilton in, even though... You know, he has a very limited skill set and uh, you know, keeping guys like uh, you know, Danny Mendick involved, uh, integrating Adam Engel back into the lineup without pushing him too hard, coming off a pretty significant hamstring injury. Um, and then, you know, being able to, you know, endure, you know, pretty crushing blows when it comes to like losing Michael Kopech in the middle of the game and losing Nick Madrigal for probably the rest of the season. Like there's been a lot of turbulence that has not been Larusa created or has not been anything related to personalities or um, strategy or old schoolness or anything like that. It's just been bad baseball luck. And he's done a good job of refocusing a team or, you know, I, I guess just setting the lineup in spite of, you know, what happened to them the previous day and getting better results. So I think there is something to that. And I think there is a value in having a guy like Larissa who's seen so much over his career, just basically trusting that he generally knows or has a sense of the big picture and, and knows like what might look bad this week, but what might pay off later and versus, you know, like what might look bad this week and what needs addressing. And so I'm hoping that even if Larissa wasn't Rick Hahn's choice and wasn't the choice of the front office, that as it comes to trade deadline, 
acquisitions and figuring out what they need, that uh, they'll be on the same page there when it comes to uh, identifying problems. And right now, I think LaRusse has done a good job of not making too much of the White Sox weaknesses. Like uh, when the bullpen wobbles, uh, you know, he just goes right back to them. And at least Cody Hoyer and Evan Marshall have done a nice job of keeping, <laughs> I guess, staving off the dogs. And and uh, mm-hmm. just when you're ready to give up on them, having uh, an outing that makes you realize like, oh, they have major league stuff. And and same thing with like Larry Garcia and so forth. So uh, that's, I think, his biggest strength so far. And I think now he's been adding wins as of late, as opposed to costing them earlier in the year. So I think it's enough to, you know, see where he goes with this and, and, and just uh, not get too hung up on the guy managing anymore. Now, if he has another situation where he condones throwing at his own, one of his own players, then I think, you know, you go back to the, uh, you go back to the battle stations and hash it out there because that's, I think that was probably the most irresponsible thing he did all year. But for the time being, I think, you know, it's easy to do or it's easy to manage this team when it's, you know, you're getting good starts basically every game. Uh, Yeah. I'm curious what will happen if Dallas Keuchel and Carlos Rodon, if they start uh, you know, hitting a rough patch to where you're going to need to navigate those fourth, fifth, and sixth innings the way that he struggled to before. That's, I think, what, what could make him look uh, more shaky or more vulnerable to uh, navigating his way through nine innings. But for the time being, with the team he has, he, I think he's, he stabilizes a presence and he's helped stabilize the White Sox. Yes, and I you make a good point that right now where the White Sox are to have a manager like Larusa, who has been through maybe every single situation a manager could go through in a career, having to navigate these murky waters with these significant injuries on the position player side, and getting enough offense to support uh, this outstanding starting rotation right now. It helps. It definitely helps for the White Sox to have Larusa in tow. Back to the Rays series. That's why, again, I find it fascinating on how he's going to manage, especially if they are one-to-one ball games going into the seventh inning, where a manager's decision, whether it's going to a certain reliever or you know making a play or calling for a particular play on offense is going to have a great impact on the win probability chart right uh that we refer mm-hmm. to and say oh this decision added win probability or it hurt win probability we'll take a look into that and we'll see on how he does uh cuz you know that may have an impact during the postseason but right now for the day to day you know every button that he's pushing this season seems to be working, Jim. Uh, he, I know it's like most of the time it's the right call. So I guess just go with the good vibes at this moment and see how long it carries. Yeah. And, and that's why I think when it comes to like the starting rotation, I think that's what, you know, and, and you mentioned that the matchup with the Rays and just trying to go, whether he tries to go move for move or tries to, um, you know, trust his guys to go six and seven innings versus, uh, two times through in that set, like it, it, there could be a situation where, you know, if the Rays succeed and if they, you know, the game pivots in the fifth inning or sixth inning, you could see a case where uh, you have some people making the argument saying this is how the game has passed him by. And I think that'll be, um, I, I wouldn't, you know, unless there's a case where he is just 
uh, you know, ha- has like say um, Lance Lynn throwing 115 pitches in the fifth inning or something like that. That's the case where yeah, that's that's severe. But otherwise, you know, if he's just trusting his pitching staff the way he's been trusting it so far and it doesn't work, I don't think you can draw sweeping conclusions off that. I think it's just as we mentioned a way for him to see what works now, for maybe to store away for things that might not work come October. Well, Two Dog, thank you so much for your question. And that will do it for our questions this week in P.O. Socks. Thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Again, we get a lot of questions every single week from our Patreon supporters. So thank you guys so much for submitting questions to us and for your continued support. And if you don't support us on Patreon, uh, please consider doing so. Uh, You get exclusive content. You get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. You also get uh, the first shot at any of our new swag items, which I believe we are getting some new swag items. Uh, So that's always very exciting. And uh, again, your support goes in a long way for us to be able to cover the White Sox at a daily basis. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can listen to us wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. I should say you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine, which we will be streaming live on via video this upcoming Wednesday night after the White Sox and Rays series as we recap that series on Sox Machine Live and then preview uh, what should be a very fun weekend series in Houston between the Astros and the White Sox. So again, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com